This is episode 26 with Emmy award-winning broadcast journalist, ultramarathoner, and author of My Year of Running Dangerously, Mr. Tom Foreman. It's not every day that I get to sit down with an award-winning journalist, someone who spends more time in the Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer than talking about running. But here we are. Today's guest is Tom Foreman. He's worked in war zones and ground zero at many natural disasters. He's interviewed serial killers and traveled through more than 20 countries covering economic meltdowns and civil wars. But what you may not know is that Tom is one hell of a runner. In just the last few years, he has returned to running after a 20-plus year absence, run a comeback marathon, which is not easy to do, and then another, and many more races, including ultramarathons, all while being one of the most recognized faces on CNN and raising two daughters. His book, My Year of Running Dangerously, tells the story of how an innocent question from his daughter rekindled his love affair with distance running. She asked him, how would you feel about running a marathon with me? And fortunately for us, Tom said yes. Tom is on the podcast today to talk about running from a more philosophical perspective, from how things change as one gets older, how to set goals once you're done running personal bests, and the incredible perspective that running provides on life. Please enjoy my interview with Tom Foreman. All right, Tom, thanks again for joining us on the podcast. I'm stoked. This is great to be here. So let's start with Big Sur. You just ran the Big Sur Marathon yesterday and gave a talk at the Expo. So how did it all go? Oh, it was just fantastic. Everything you've heard about this race is absolutely true. Breathtakingly beautiful. Lots of hills, but they're fun hills, I think. And the people are out of this world in terms of being supportive from the volunteers to the locals around there to the uh, law enforcement closing the course and everything and the businesses supporting it. Just really a wonderful, wonderful race. And our weather was absolutely perfect. A little bit of wind, a little bit warm, but really perfect. So it wasn't as warm as Boston was a few weeks ago. No. <laughs> no, and we've all had those races, haven't we? I had a half last fall that uh, it was a double out and back, and some friends were running the full. As I was finishing the half, it was 92 degrees already. Oh, no. And one of my friends who was making the turn, as he came by, he said, man, he said it was hard to make that turn because he knew that by the time he finished, it would be, what, 97, 98, something like that. Yeah, that's hard. How did you feel about a double out and back marathon? Because I've run one of those in the past, and uh, it was right in your neck of the woods. It was the Potomac River Run Marathon in 2013. Yeah, this is the same group that does that one. This one was called the Abibi Bakila Peace Day Marathon. And it's the same course. It's the same group. And you kind of have to have, first of all, you're running on that that dirt slash gravel path, uh, which is, is fine if you like that. It makes your footing a little uneven the whole time. I, I think it just takes a really perfect mindset to do that and do it well. I like the fact it was flat. But uh, I may do it again this fall if I don't if I don't succeed uh, with what I'm trying to do with BQing this uh, you know in a few weeks then I may turn to that one just because it's right before uh, the cutoff time uh, for getting into Boston. But it's, yeah, it'll it's be hard. some good timing, and it's, yeah, it's yeah. good. I think those types of races are really good for 
rhythm runners, the runners that like to get into, you know, the pace range that they need to be in and they just knock off those miles one after the other. And they're really good at getting into that kind of a rhythm. But if you're someone who likes to race other people, uh, who really likes to run the terrain, whatever that might be, those out and backs are probably not for you. It's flat, it's boring, and you're just going to be running back and forth for uh, many hours. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's almost as if you if you're a more introverted or extroverted runner, right? Are you taking most of your stimulus from the things around you or is most of it coming from within you? If you're really somebody where it's all coming from inside you, maybe it doesn't matter so much where you're running because you're not focused on that much. But but I kind of like a race where I have not only markers that give me a sense of where I'm going, but also things that give me a reason to vary my pace a little bit. You know, you don't want to be way off on your splits, but I think you at least want to have the, the perception of varied pace. Very often in a long race, a marathon or even an ultra marathon, I will hit certain miles and say, okay, I'm coasting for a while here, which doesn't mean I'm actually running a lot slower, but it just means that mentally I may be backing down a few seconds, five seconds, 10 seconds per mile for a couple miles and it gives me a real boost compared to just hitting everything right on the money, which I know is very efficient, but sometimes can kind of eat away at you. And I think the mental benefit of telling yourself that you're going to coast for a little while is huge and shouldn't be ignored. I think that's almost uh, a, a bigger break than say five or 10 seconds slower per mile. You know, if you're running a marathon, for example, if you, if you tell yourself, Hey, I'm going to run five seconds a mile slower over the next three miles that for some reason just puts you in vacation mode for the next three those next three miles i totally agree and it sets you up really well for the final miles and i will often if i'm running a really good race and feeling good i will at the half marathon mark or at 15 miles i will say okay it's holiday time for the next six or seven miles get to that 20 mile mark feeling like you have something in you Instead of hitting 20, 21, 22, feeling like you're already gassed, it's such a, you're right, it's just such a boost. And I don't know, physiologically, is it really helping you? I don't know, but psychologically, it sure helps me. Yeah, it might be more mental at that point. I'm not sure if the body knows that much of a difference, especially at marathon pace, because it's still aerobic between, say, you know, a, a 7.30 pace and a 7.35 or an eight-minute yeah, exactly. pace and an 8.10. That physiologically, your body knows very little difference between those two paces. Yeah, I think that's true. I, you know, I honestly think that one of the things I notice when I'm around uh, a lot of, you know, older people who are, are still sort of beginning runners but who run quite slow, you know, I, I think one of the challenges for them is that sometimes it's very hard for them to feel the difference over an even broader range. If they're running 10 minute miles or 1045 miles, they sometimes don't feel it. And I think that's really hard for them because then they become slaves to their watches. And we all know that sometimes our watches aren't spot on the money and that it cre creates more anxiety for them. And I think sometimes their running is full of anxiety anyway because they, they know they're not the fastest people out there. Right. Oh, man. There's there's so much there that I agree with and we could talk about for probably a couple more hours. Um, first, definitely, God, I, I see this almost all the time. And I would say it's not necessarily slower runners. It's beginner runners. And if you talk to an experienced runner, they're very much 
knowledgeable about how different paces feel intuitively uh, across a wide range. I mean, they know what seven minute pace feels like, and they know what seven thirty and eight minute feels like. Feels like, and if they're faster, they're going to be able to get on the track and really dial it in with you know a six minute mile pace or a five fifty or a five forty five, and they're going to be able to hit those different paces. And that really all comes down to experience. It's just if you've been practicing for years and years and years, and a lot of beginners, you know, it's only been a couple months. You're obviously not going to be that uh, good at running, and you're not going to have as much mastery over how different paces feel, which does just take a lot of time, a lot of practice, and a lot of experience. Yeah, I think you're, you're probably right there. It's probably not so much your speed as much as your experience. The other thing I think that the more experience you have, you also become much better at predictive running in that when you're in a race, you often have a better sense of what's going to happen in the coming miles. You know, if you're really experienced, uh, you can still be surprised. You can still have a race where it suddenly falls apart and you're not sure why it did. But more often, I find myself having a pretty good idea. If I'm at 15 miles and I feel a certain way, I'll wait and try to cycle back up to feel better. But if I'm not, I I can start doing the recalculation in my head of saying, okay, this isn't your day, this isn't going to work. Likewise, sometimes I'm at 12 miles or 16, and you can just feel that click going, and you're saying, this is good. And I'm going to be able to go through. And at the times like that, it, it feels like you don't need to watch at all. You just know. You you have a sense of your pace. You know how you're running. You know how it's going to play through you. And I think that's, uh, again, I think that helps reduce the anxiety around racing. And for the more experienced you become, as you contain that anxiety, you can think your way through a race instead of dealing with all the emotions of just not knowing. I think you're right on with that. And it really just makes me think back to, you know, my college racing days where I was racing so frequently. And you learn so much about yourself as an athlete when you race so frequently and you do workouts and long runs and, you know, all the different training runs that you have to do day in and day out. And those races become pretty predictable. You know that, all right, if I go out in with my first mile being X time, then I know, you know, I'm going to put myself in a position to be able to do X, Y, Z. And, you know, I know if when I was running the fastest times that I could in the 5k, I knew that if I was 512 through the mile, that was too slow. But if I was 505, that was too fast. And I was probably going to suffer later on in that race. So there's this really narrow margin of, of error that you have, and you have to be, you have to really thread that needle and run almost at the right pace. Not a little bit too fast is okay, but if you're too slow or too fast by too much on either end, then you're going to blow the race. And, and that margin I think gets narrower and narrower as you become more experienced and you know just what your body is capable of doing uh, specifically on a race day too. Well, and you get frustrated when you go out and, you know, you've had those races where you go out and maybe you're, you're a little too fast in an early mile and you try to pull it back and then you find that you've stacked up another one or two or three or four and you're still fish biting at a little bit too fast. Those, are, those to me are frustrating races because I'm saying to myself, pull it back, slow down, you're going to need this. 
And sometimes you just, it's, it's hard to contain. When I was speaking to uh, the runners out of Big Sur, one of the things I was talking about is you just have to, you have to contain yourself at that beginning. And the less experienced you are, the more you have to contain yourself and not get swept away in that crowd. Have fun, have a good time, feel the excitement. But I mean, how many people have you seen out there who, you know, on their best day, they're running nine minute miles suddenly they get into a big race and they're cranking off eight twenties and they've done like three or four in a row. And I just look at them and I'm like, you're doomed because that is way too hot for what, for what you're ready for today. Now maybe it'll be a miracle, but usually it's not. And you have to you know, bring yourself under control. And again, it all comes with experience. Yeah. And it's it rarely a miracle happens, especially in the yeah. longer races. Yeah. I think in the marathon, the, um, you know, the pacing quote that I really love is, you know, for the runner who tries to go out a little bit fast and bank time, just know that you'll have to withdraw that time with interest during the second half. That is totally true. I absolutely do not believe in banking time. I used to think that it worked. I've proven myself wrong too many times to believe that I can bank time. I think what I can do is bank energy. That's a good thing. But you bank energy by lots of control, having a very um, conservative approach to that first half of the race, and then laying it all out there, which of course, as you know, also feels so much better. It's such a great feeling to hit the line saying, I'm still accelerating and going, you know, you don't want to leave too much on the course, but it's such a great feeling that way, as opposed to, wow, I've got three more miles to go and the tank is empty. And you're, you're just, you feel you're dreading the idea that you're going to be dropping gigantic chunks of time in your last three miles. And that's no good. No, that's never good. And uh, I, I keep thinking back to all my marathons that, you know, most of them, Actually, I shouldn't say most of them, but uh, a good chunk of them went that way where I was either fast or on what I thought I could do right around the halfway point. And then, you know, you hit that 20 mile mark and all the cliches are true. You start slowing down and there's nothing you can do about it. Um, you know, there's there's no better feeling than hitting, you know, mile 20 or 22 in a marathon and not feeling terrible. There's no better feeling than knowing that you're going to be able to run strong to the finish. And that yeah. only comes from a very patient uh, careful execution of your pace during the first 20 miles. And I usually yeah. say to myself, the first 20 miles should feel kind of easy. You know, marathon pace isn't a terribly fast pace in and of itself. It's just challenging when you start doing it for 26.2 miles. So the first 20 miles, I always thought to myself, you know, let's just make this as easy as I can. I'm not going to put any pressure on myself. I'm not even going to think of this as a race. The first 20 miles is a very easy tempo run. And then at the 20 mile mark, I'll start racing. Yeah. Well, let's see. It's that old saying, right? You run 20 to race the last six. And it's a great feeling when you can pull that off. And it's, it's, uh, you know, that's, I'm, I'm, I, I'm hoping to BQ in a few weeks, hoping to, don't know if I will. But things are stacked up properly, but they will only work if I do that. If I make myself behave for those first 20 miles and all the other variables you have, you know, sleep and weather and everything else that can mess you up. But if, if that's right and I contain myself in those first 20 miles, just as you described, 
then I have a real shot at it. If I don't, then forget it. Uh, by the time I hit 20, I'll be too spent. And there, what a terrible feeling that is when you feel like your goal is in front of you and in your final miles, you see it, you know, it's, it's like the miles are getting longer somehow and you just <laughs> feel it slipping away. And then you feel like, wow, I put all this effort in and, and, and outwitted myself when I think I could have had a better run at it if I'd just been a little bit smarter about my running. Now, what marathon are you doing in a few weeks to try to get that BQ? I'm going to try Cleveland. It's flat. Um, I've never run it before. Not, it's got a fair number of turns in the first half, but then it sort of straightens out. Uh, seems like maybe I'll be okay for temperature, but that's the, really, that's the wild card. It could be hot, but it also could be okay. I, apparently last year, I believe the last year they had like sleet and hail and they had all sorts of wackiness happening there. But as long as there aren't terrible winds coming in off the lake, and the temperature is reasonable. It's a it's a fairly good late spring shot at BQing. And if it doesn't work, that's fine. Then I have a, another good base and I can recycle and try to get back around uh, for fall. Well, that's good to hear. I hope I hope it goes well for you. Hope they hope you get that BQ and that will put you in a good position to run Boston next year in 2018. Yeah, I- well, I hope so. My, my, uh, the daughter that I wrote, uh, uh, my book, my year of running dangerously, uh, about largely she's now living in Boston and she lives on the last mile of the race. Oh, okay. So she yeah. is, um, is she in school? Yeah, she's, well, she's, she finished in, in the book. I talked about her studying, uh, aerospace engineering at Georgia tech. She, uh, graduated from Georgia tech. Now she's doing a double master's and her PhD in aerospace engineering at MIT. So, oh, and she's okay. still running and she ran and she ran big sir with me this weekend. And it was our third, her third marathon, uh, our third one together. Cause I've run all of her marathons with her and we had such a good time and she ran really her training wasn't up where she wanted it to be because she's been so busy with her studies. Like all of us, we have a million things that compete for our time. But she was trained up enough to go out and have a wonderful run. And that's what we focused on. That's that whole goal thing, isn't it? This The goal of this race for me was this should be a nice shakeout run. I needed about 22 miles that day anyway. So I'll just run it nice and slowly with her, shake my legs out, have fun, visit with people, take a lot of photographs. And the number one goal of the day was to go to this beautiful marathon and have a beautiful experience. And let's not worry about the clock today. And I think that sets me up better to worry about the clock in three weeks. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. Well, I I hope you get that BQ. And uh, you're right. The last time we talked, it was, let's see, it was the fall of 2015. Your book, I think, had, had come out earlier that year. And if I'm not mistaken, were you preparing for a string of marathons in close succession that, yeah. that season? Yeah. Yeah, I did. I ended up doing the Chicago Marathon for the first time. Two weeks after that, I did five marathons in five days, one of oh, which boy. was the Marine Corps Marathon. Then three days after that, I, I mean, obviously one was an official marathon. The others were simply marathon distance, but all I sort of mapped it all out uh, from here to New York, from D.C. to New York. Then I ran the New York City Marathon two days after that. So that was like uh, seven marathons in three weeks, I guess, total. 
including the five and five days. And then two weeks after that, I did the stone mill 50 miler again. I'll tell you what was interesting about that though. I did not get hurt in any of that. And I was sort of worried about that because that's a lot of stacking. And I came out of it thinking, well, that's pretty great. I'm not hurt. But for productive purposes, I lost almost the entire next year. Because even though I ran, my legs were as flat as they could possibly be. Now, I'm you know, well into my mid-50s, so you don't recover the same way you do when you're younger. But uh, I was really shocked that the weeks went by and the months went by. And I was still out there, but every run just felt, my, oh, my gosh, it's like my legs were made of sand. And it was so hard. And then that summer, I had the first injury I've had in years and years. I tore out a hamstring and tore it out big time. Uh, while trying to do some speed work because I thought, well, no, 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 I can get through this. I'll just force my way through it. And then I had to recover from the hamstring and slowly work my way back. And now this year I'm running well again, but it was really interesting to see the cumulative damage of having stacked that much. Yeah. And that's a lot of, that's a lot of volume in a pretty short period of time. Um, now just out of curiosity, what, what made you do all those marathons and then the 50 miler in, in a pretty brief time period? I just, you know, I thought it would be interesting and I was sort of testing the limits of, of ultra running for me. There are many people who can go a whole lot further than that and can do a whole lot, uh, better. Uh, you know, uh, we've spoken about Michael Wardian fantastic guy he can stack it like that and go with it um i just wanted to see what it would be like and to help promote the book i'm not sure how much it promoted the book but it was it was an interesting experiment i enjoyed doing it but it's a completely different type of running that i'm doing right now now i want to be fast and in the quest to be fast i'm not so worried whether or not i'm just stacking giant miles and again at my age I'm not sure stacking giant miles is in any way the secret to being fast at my age. I think a lot of great speed work, uh, some kind of cross-training a little bit, some things that help get the most out of the tools you have will do better for me now. So uh, it was, do, it was fun I do, to do agree with that, Tom. I, I was going to ask you, you know, now that you are in, in your mid-50s and, you know, uh, you know, for me at least, I'm – I starting to feel the effects of, of getting older. Uh, you know, I, I look back on some of my PRs and they're all from when I was 20, 21, 22, 23 in, in that early twenties age range. Um, but I'm curious in your perspective, you know, what has changed now with your running compared with, you know, when you were younger, are there a very tangible, discrete things that, that you experience now? Well, the, yes, absolutely. First of all, recovery is slower than when I was younger. I, more importantly, I work at training now. When I was younger, I just, I, I had sort of natural talent and I didn't really think much about it. I just went out and ran and had a good time running and I could win races at a low level pretty easily that way. So I never felt like I had to work on it. Consequently, when I went to run marathons back then, when I was young, I was never trained for them. I would, you know, piddle around with running and say I was training, but I had no idea what real training would be. And, of course, bear in mind, this is interesting. A lot of people who are younger don't really know this. When I ran marathons back in my 20s, the, the wisdom was 
that drinking water would make you sick. Oh, boy. Yeah. So, and, and you were often told, many people were like, no, 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 don't eat anything before the race. That will make you sick. So many, many of us would toe the line, having eaten nothing that day, we would take off running, and in the course of a marathon, you might have two little tables with little tiny cups of water on them where you were urged to simply rinse your mouth and spit it out. So when you, when you weren't trained, <laughs> yeah, isn't that amazing? Yeah, I'm and when sitting you here like, is that, is that for real? Yeah, well, and I think, honestly, I think that's why the whole idea that you used to hear people talk about all the time about, well, when you run the marathon, you hit the wall at 19 or 20 miles. Well, think about it. If that's how you went out and ran a marathon today, the chances of you kind of hitting a wall would be pretty high unless you were exceptionally well-trained because, yeah, you're going to run out. All those stores inside you are gone. The sugars are gone. Your salts are a mess. You've got no water in you. And suddenly that's it. You're out of gas. And uh, it was it was really different. But the main difference between uh, differences between back then and now is recovery time. I have to take it much more seriously. I have to think much more about respecting the fact that I need rest, that I need some sleep. I may need some stretching, some rolling, some things to loosen up my muscles some more. And, uh, and I, and I have to train. I can't just go in and fake my way through it. It's uh, it's a slow process, and you have to build it up a piece at a time, which I should have known back then. But that's sort of the curse of if you're sort of a natural runner, that's the real trick of it. If you're a natural runner, you think, well, sure, I can do this. And to a degree, you can. And you may actually win a fair number of things that way. But then you're going to get up against people who have just as much natural talent who also train. And then they're going to clean your clock. Right, right, absolutely. And I think what I'm hearing from you is that, you know, you have to pay attention to the little things in your training, you know, the strength work, the foam rolling, making sure you're getting enough sleep. Um, but at the same time, you know, those are things that every runner should be should be focusing on, you know, we all need to make sure we're recovering properly, we all need to make sure that we're training appropriately for whatever race we're preparing for. But I think as we get older, you know, for masters runners and beyond, there's less margin of, of error available to you. And you can't get away with some of the training errors that you might have made when you're, you know, 20 or 30. And you, you have, you know, higher levels of testosterone that's going to help you with recovery and, and all those, you know, different aspects of, of being a good runner. So when you're older, it's let's make fewer training mistakes and that's going to make all the difference. Well, I'll tell you something. I think that I very well could run the fastest marathon of my life in my 50s, of my life. And that is not a measure of me being a great runner in my 50s. That's a measure of how much I didn't tend to the things I should have tended to back in my 20s. Because I, I look at it now and I realize I could have been a very fast runner back then. But I had, I had some friends who were uh, much more serious about running, and I would not, I would not run at all because I was just doing other stuff. I was involved in playing music and being in bands and doing all sorts of things. And, and one of my really serious running friends would take off for a six-mile run or a 10-mile run, and just on any given day, I'd say, I'll go with you. 
and I'd throw on my shoes and I'd run it. And they would say, it's kind of amazing. You can just jump in and run like this. Well, that's the problem. That amazing convinced me that I wasn't paying a price. But in retrospect, I know I was. And I could have been such a better runner. If I trained back then the way I do now, and if I paid attention to these things that I pay attention to now, back then, I would have a much, much more satisfying running history behind me if that's the thing I wanted to have. And that's so this is like for anybody listening to this, this is a voice from your future <laughs> saying, you know, take, take it seriously now. Exactly what you're talking about. Recovery, all these things that maybe you don't feel like you have to do so much because you're younger and all your muscles feel bouncy and it all feels like, well, that doesn't make a difference to me. It's like, well, it actually does make a difference. And, you know, Tim Noakes in his book, uh, Lore of Running, they, they have some photographs in there of muscle tissue after a marathon. And it's sort of microscopic images. And it is so interesting how the muscle tissue before the race, all these nice, clean, plump, healthy lines, and afterward, all fractured, like glass that's been crazed or an iPhone that's been dropped in all those muscle tissues. That's something that when you're young, you don't feel as much, you don't think as much. But I think the same thing is happening to you when you're young. And the fact that you can blow by it makes you think it's not an issue. But it is an issue, and 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 you'll rue the day that you ignored it, even though you you may not feel it now. Yeah, I think it gets down to you know this whole issue of you potentially running your fastest marathon in your fifties. I, I think it's it has so much to do with one's training age, and your training age is simply the number of years of consistent training that you have underneath you. So someone who's been running you know, for five years and pretty consistently, their training age is five. But, you know, if you start running at age 50, then you're starting off with a blank slate. You're starting at ground zero and your training age is also zero. So you might, of course, be setting PRs like crazy in your 50s uh, because you're you're starting with a very low training age. But, that's you know, a great, if you were someone that trained seriously for a decade in your 20s, you know, from high school up through, you know, uh, your late 20s, then your training age is still going to be pretty high if you even after, say, a 20 or 30 year break. Uh, and it's going to make setting a PR a lot more difficult uh, at that time, just because, you know, you were training seriously way back in your youth. Uh, but, you know, yeah, yeah. it's almost a silver lining now, Tom, that you didn't train that seriously because now you get to experience all these potential PRs on the horizon. Well, yeah, and it's and it's fun in that sense, right? Um, it just, it makes you sort of say, what if? You know, it's, it, it makes one of those things where you look back and say, what if I had done this? How different would that have been? Well, it also would have changed the course of my life, I suppose, in maybe ways that I wouldn't like. But, but uh, it's, a, it's a very interesting thing to do. And it kind of comes back to what you said a little while ago when we were talking about pacing. It has so much to do with experience. And I, I found that to be true of, of work and family and everything else. Uh, you know, when, when you're young, we all tend to want to think everything has to be about talent and intelligence because we don't really have experience. And we want to sort of poo-poo experience because we just don't have it. We're too young for that much experience. But I think you get older, and whether by older, for a runner, older, maybe 25 or 30, you, you have more experience. 
And you start looking back and saying, ah, that's what makes a difference. You know, uh, uh, Med Kofleski and I, uh, he, we visit a pretty good, often one of the nicest guys in the world. And Meb and I have talked about how many races he's won just because he understands racing. And he's had a lot of experience. And he's like, yeah, we get into a race. And sometimes, you know, there are guys there who basically pretty sure he can, they can outrun him if they get to run their race. But if he can get them to run his race, then it might, it might go his way. And, uh, of course he's retiring this year, but, but, uh, but I think a lot of races, he was able to do that. He was able to sort of dictate the way the race went. And that was just experience. And I think you see that in a lot of sports. You see the, the old football player who's all beaten up and doesn't move nearly as fast as he once did. And he's lost a lot of his mobility. And yet he still dominates part of the field. And it's always, well, because he understands the game, that depth of experience that tells him how to get the most out of the tools he has. And when it comes to running... Racing is probably the most um, tactical thing that you'll do as a runner. It's definitely the most skill-based thing that you'll do. So, you know, you know, there's so many little tricks uh, when it comes to racing, especially if it's, you know, on a cross-country course or it's on a road race, otherwise not on the track, where you can use the course itself to your advantage. And you really only learn those things after you've run a lot of races. And you need to, you need to run races tired. You need to run races fresh. You need to run races when it's 25 degrees and when it's 90 degrees and in all sorts of conditions so that you learn uh, how you perform at your best ability and uh, what you prefer in a race situation. And only after a lot of experience are you going to be able to really know uh, the type of racer you are and in what conditions you really thrive in so that you can uh, hopefully have a really great race. Uh, well, now, Tom, the more, there's one other thing the more, I wanted to ask you about. Yeah. You know, we were talking about, you know, the difference in training between now and, you know, when you were just a, a sprightly young 20 year old, when it comes to, uh, faster workouts, so speed work, have you noticed anything very different about that now that you're in your, in your mid fifties? Is it, is it something that must be approached with a different mindset or can you still, as long as you're focusing on recovery, can you still attack a speed workout the same way? I am careful about my speed works bec uh, because many of the plans and the ideas for speed work are built around a sort of an avatar of an average younger runner. So I look at all the numbers carefully because look, you get some plan that you get from anybody and it says, do this, do this, do this. Well, that's not actually custom made for me. That's made for some generic runner who we believe is going to do well at these speeds. So I'm careful about it because I would rather have, let's say I'm going out to do uh, uh, a series of sort of working up a ladder, doing a 400, then an 800, then, you know, maybe a mile and then an 800, then another mile and then back working back down. Right. Um, if I'm doing something like that to boost my speed up, I would like the back end of those, uh, rushes out there to be strong like the front end. So if I'm pushing too hard on the front side, for whatever reason, if I just don't have it that day, if I'm trying to do 730s and I'm actually getting 750s, 
Well, I would rather, uh, with some degree of, of sustainability, get through all of those intervals with a solid 750, 745, and still feel like I was doing some good on the last ones, then blow myself out in the first couple trying to hit 730, and then find that all the rest of them are horrible. They're not even in the ball game. And I think that that's, I look for consistency a lot. And in that consistency, I look to avoid injury because I, I learned my lesson tearing out that hamstring that yes, I can force it because, you know, a lot of us as runners, you learn to force past what makes you uncomfortable. But there's, there's that point where you say, I'm forcing it beyond discomfort into a danger zone. And I don't want to be in that area. I'm fine being uncomfortable, but I, I'm very mindful of that. And I listen to all the little signals that come from my body. And if I feel something, I was out on a 20 mile run a couple of weeks ago. And for some reason around mile 17, I just felt something a little squirrely happening on one of my legs. And I dropped down, walked for, I don't know, 75 feet, not much, but just enough to let it settle down again. And then I took off. And that's something that I probably wouldn't have done when I was younger. But now I think I, I should do. Yeah, that reminds me of something you said during our first conversation that uh, you said, what happens with today's run doesn't matter if it makes you unable or unwilling to run tomorrow. And I think I that you really still believe that. Yeah, you really uh, uh, stay true to that. Well, you have to, right? Because it's that's the same as what we we're talking about running a race earlier. It doesn't matter if you're doing a marathon. It doesn't matter if you have a brilliant 18 miles. If you can't deliver that last push, that last uh, uh, group that you have to get through there, it doesn't matter that the first part was great. And we've all had that. And I'll bet you this. I'll bet you based on your experience, Jason, I'll bet you can remember right now a half dozen races where you made mistakes that you wouldn't make now, but you did then. You went too fast for the conditions or you let somebody lure you into chasing or something. And, and I, you probably look back on your whole life and say, if, if only I had done this, I could have taken that guy. Oh, but, yeah. You, know, you, you make those mistakes. Yeah, all the time. Especially, you know, when you have run so many races as, as I have, then there's probably more failed races than successful races. Um, so I think... Probably a lot of listeners are, you know, are, are used to seeing my PRs in a bio somewhere, but that's the that's the point one percent. Uh, majority of races were either mediocre, average, or abysmal failures. Uh, and then again, you know, at the same time, I wouldn't have been able to run those PRs and get all that racing experience. Uh, if I didn't have those failed races. So yes, while I certainly ran a lot of races where I went out too fast, I think my second mile at the Boston Marathon in 2014 was a 541, which was a terrible decision on my <laughs> part. And I certainly paid for it later in the race. Uh, you know, I needed those races. Uh, I needed failures so that I could learn from them. I, I have said for a long time, uh, many years ago, I spent a day with the great animator Chuck Jones, a guy who created Bugs Bunny. He was 85 years old at the time, and he said his first day in art school, when he was a teenager, the instructor walked in and said, each one of you has 10,000 bad drawings in you. The sooner we get them out, the better. Let's start drawing. I love that. Yeah, and I believe that about what we do. 
I, you are absolutely right. The only way you get to the great runs is by getting through the bad ones, the bad races where you make mental mistakes, maybe you make physical mistakes, maybe you don't feel great, maybe the weather's not great. And, and I think you should welcome those runs because you have to get through them. They can't all be perfect. And every time you have a bad run, you really learn something from it. You don't, I, I would argue that you don't learn much from great runs because all great runs tell you is that you were right. I trained right and it was the right day and I dressed right and I was ready and I did it right. Well, you already think you're right. We all think that. What you learn from is a bad run because the bad run is where you come up with new strategies for how are you going to get that little extra power to recover when you've made a mistake in the second mile of Boston, right? How do you get back on it when for some reason the hills are beating you up today? How do you make it happen when you have a little something bothering you in a calf and you've got to settle it down? Maybe you have to take a couple of miles to just cool out and then hit it again. All of that comes from experience and all of that comes from bad runs and learning what doesn't work. So I, listen, I still feel that way. I have bad runs and I come in the door and my wife will say, how was it? And I'll say, it was terrible. Glad I did it. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Now let's, uh, let's talk about something that we touched on briefly earlier, but I kind of want to explore it a little bit more, uh, goal setting. Now, for most of my running career, I was really just focused on speed. My interest was getting PRs in whatever distance I was running. And at this point, since I was so serious about my training at, at kind of the prime of my physical life, you know, I'm at the point of my running career where I'm probably not going to set any more PRs. You know, I'm, I'm beyond my physical prime for most events, given my training. And, you know, also I just don't have the time or the drive to train like I used to, you know, I'm not going to run 80, 90 miles a week anymore. So in other words, I have no idea how to set goals in, you know, my current post PR landscape, I guess you can call it. So, you know, I, I know that you're chasing PRs still, Tom, and you're going after a BQ soon, but I'm curious how you think about goal setting aside from trying to set personal bests. Well, I, I think that your goal setting to me has to be applicable to where you are. It's like that old saying, no matter what you do or, or where you go, there you are. Because you've had this really excellent racing career, you're right. You're not going to be cracking your PRs. That's not going to happen. Um, but that doesn't mean you can't isolate something that matters to you in an important way. It's funny you should mention this because I actually was saying the other day to my wife, I said, I wonder if I should write an article for some running site or something about the difficulty of backing down. Because I see this all the time. People who train for, so let's say they run marathons for a couple of years and then their life is so busy, they can't continue marathoning because they just don't have the time to train for it. Well, it's really easy to see the dispirited look in their eyes when they go out to run a 10K because they're like, wow, yeah, I used to run the marathon. Now I'm just you know, running the turkey trot or whatever. And they, you can see them feel bad about it. And I, I think that there is a real challenge there in backing down your goals. But maybe what people have to do is have a more holistic approach to what matters, Right. There are other things in your life now that are taking some precedence over some level of training that you once had when you did 80, 90 miles a week 
That's fine though. Those, those other goals really matter too. I don't, one of the things I wrote about initially in my year of running dangerously was not, you know, I did not want to be a great runner and a bad father. I didn't want to be a great runner and a bad worker or a bad husband. So those were part of my goals too, that had nothing to do with running, but they had everything to do with sort of a holistic approach to life. And I think that sometimes really wonderful runners have to say to themselves, some things have changed a little bit. So now I'm, maybe my goal is to find a way to truly enjoy running and not feel strange if I'm not running up near the front of the pack to really enjoy being out here. And one thing that I have found a lot of older runners find, particularly in ultra running, I take immense joy when I'm running a really long, difficult race and I run into somebody near the back who's really struggling, who needs encouragement because you know what? I'm really good at that. I'm not going to win, but I can really help somebody who thinks they can't even get through it, get through. And that makes me feel pretty good. And that's a pretty great goal for me to say, I was able to take some of my experience and my encouragement. As I, as I say to people running in the middle of the pack is a great place to pat people on the back. And, and I really believe in that. And so I think that sometimes what people need are more holistic goals that aren't really just about running, but they're about making sure that running fits in. In fact, interestingly enough, when Ronnie and I ran Big Sur this week, we'd done two marathons before. Um, in each of them, I'm, I'm faster than her now. The day will come when she's faster than me, and that'll be the last time that I can ever keep up with her. But my real goal at Big Sur was to say, we want to have a truly enjoyable experience. And before we started, I said to her, if at any point you feel me getting a, a, a stride or two ahead of you and consistently staying there, just mention it to me because I don't want you to feel dragged. I don't want you to feel like you're feeling the pressure of, well, dad's running a little faster. I need to stay with him. Cause I didn't want her to have a bad experience. So I took great joy in the fact that at one point she said, dad, you're getting, you're getting these, you know, these strides on me. And I dropped back and fell about a half pace behind her. And that was one of my goals because I didn't want her to feel pressured. I wanted her to have a fun race. And when we finished, I felt really good about that. Yeah, it's not really a, not a running goal, right? But it's, it was a running goal for me. Well, I think it's a, it's, it's, it's a goal that encapsulates your running. It's not necessarily a speed oriented goal. Uh, and you know, I think for me, at least, it's certainly something that I need to work on. You know, I get, I get very discouraged if I'm not in peak shape and, uh, I'm never going to be in peak shape again. So I can't just go through life as a discouraged runner. You know, I, yeah, but you know what you will, but you are in peak shape for the life you're living now. Right. You're right. Cause it's not, because that's, and that's the thing it's, it's, I was talking to some runners the other day and, uh, and this guy said, Oh, well, you know, I, I feel really bad because I don't get out there and run much. And, you know, because I got little kids and I don't get out there and run much. And he said, I, I guess I should rearrange my priorities. And I said, I think you're following your priorities. If you care about your children that way and that's the thing that's important to you, that doesn't mean you're not a runner. It doesn't mean you're not a good runner. It means that in the panoply of your life, running has to have a sustainable place to fit because we also know, and how many of us know people who, not just running, anything. People who throw themselves 
headlong into this is the thing I must be forever. And they can kind of lay wreckage to their whole life. And there's no reason to do that. And, and certainly not running because the truth is you're at an age now, right? Where you, you won't have the speed of youth, but if you run this right and you have the right kind of goals and the right sort of overall approach to your life, I would guess you would have numerous renaissances in your life of running that will be beautiful and wonderful and that you'll really enjoy. And that'll be a lot of fun that won't happen if you just keep hammering through saying, no, 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 I must always compare to what I was when I was 20 or 22 or 25 or whatever. It's, I mean, I'm having one now. And what the renaissance is, is the realization that I didn't train much back then. And perhaps I should have, but you know what? That's water under the bridge. I don't care now. Now I'm here and I'll run on. And you know, next year, if one day I went out to run and I suddenly said, this is not making me happy anymore. And it's not making my family happy. Well, I'll hang up the shoes and do something else. And then maybe I'll come back to it, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to get to where I hate it. And people hate me just because I'm trying to be something I wasn't uh, that I'm not anymore. Yeah. That's a good way to think about it. And I just keep remembering my wife telling me like, we have a newborn now you're going to go run for three hours. And, uh, you know, I certainly had to make some tough decisions then, but yeah. You know, also reminds me of uh, just a small local 5K I did here in Denver last fall. And I, I ended up winning this 5K, but I, I won it at a pace that I would normally run a marathon at. And so, you know, I finished and I was like, okay, I won the race. But, you know, it, it wasn't a time I was proud of. It wasn't a pace I was proud of. Uh, it, there was no, you know, sprint finish. There was no great, you know, tactical duel in the last mile or anything like that. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized my whole family was there. My two young daughters, who were at the time uh, one and a half and three and a half, were able to watch their dad run and win a race. So they don't know if I ran six-minute pace or five-minute pace or seven-minute pace. They still were able to see their dad competing in this athletic event that they had never seen before. And I think the more I thought about it, the more I realized that this was a great day for the family of course, it wasn't a great day for my speed, but that's not really the most important thing anymore. No, it's well, listen, as, as I said, right now, I'm faster than Ronnie. Um, like the day will come when she's faster than me, but I'm faster than her right now. Every marathon that we've run together of her three marathons, I have run every step of the way with her in those three marathons. All of them, I could have had a much better time. I do not care in the slightest because. It was so much more important for me to be with her. And you know how great it is to have a daughter who's almost 25 now? She's now done like 20 half marathons, three full marathons, and she identifies herself as a runner. She knows she's not a fast runner, but the fact that she identifies that self and that's a good feeling to her, boy, that means everything in the world. And, and honestly, I got to tell you, you know, Jason, as I, as I often say to runners, you go out to a big race, you go out to a race with 20,000, 30,000, 50,000 people like New York, how many people get to win? One, two, a handful if you count all the different divisions. That's it. Everybody else has to run for something else. And I think that, that it can be a wonderful experience if you learn to run for the thing that's beautiful about it to you. And 
and that's great about it to you. And you're absolutely right. I mean, what a great thing you did to run out there and let your daughter see you do that and to say, that's my dad. That's what adults do. Adults also play. Adults also put in effort and exercise. That will last in a way that, honestly, take any PR you want. Somebody's going to beat it because that's just the way it goes. Yeah, you they already a world have, record. Tom. A lot right? of people right? Right? <laughs> right. I mean, you're, I mean, you're a world record holder and somebody's going to, you know, one day, one day someone's going to look back on Usain Bolt and say, well, he was fast, but this guy, he's even faster. And somebody's going to crack the two hour marathon. And when they do, everyone's going to say, ah, this is the miracle worker. And a lot of people who, you know, held on for a long time will then be on their way to being forgotten, but they won't be forgotten by the people they really influence in their lives. They won't be forgotten by those people. And the legacy of their life is a lot more than numbers. I mean, frankly, Jason, I, I would think the legacy of your life in running may have a whole lot more to do with what you're doing right now than the actual running. But yeah, the this, love of this running and encouraging other people. Right. Yeah. I think speaking with other runners and helping runners with their training and coaching is, I think, a lot more sustainably fulfilling to me than you know, my own training and racing, which, you know, was something, you know, fairly short lived, you know, you're only at your, your physical peak for a couple years before there's an inevitable decline or other things come up in your life where you can't give it a hundred percent. So, uh, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, what, what I find the most gratifying at this point in my life when it comes to running is seeing my athletes set personal bests uh, and qualify for Boston and do all sorts of big things with their running. For me, that's what I find the most satisfying. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a legacy that'll last. Well, Tom, this is why I love talking with you. You're like a running philosopher. We can probably just talk about the nuances of running forever. But, um, you know, I want to be respectful of your time. Thanks so much. I know you're usually reporting the news on TV or in the Situation Room um, on CNN. So I do very much appreciate you taking some time out of your day. Listen, it's always a pleasure, my friend. And uh, we'll get in some miles when we get together. Yeah, I'll let you know the, the next time I'm in D.C. And until then, uh, good luck with your Big Sur recovery and with your uh, shot at a BQ in a couple of weeks. We'll see how it goes. All right. Good luck. All right. Thanks, pal. Hey, it's Jason back one more time before you take off today. I hope you like this conversation with Tom. It was a little different from what we normally do. It was less prescriptive, but something I've come to appreciate from older runners in particular is their perspective you know, how they think about training and how they think about training over a long period of time. So I hope this interview gives you a few insights that can better inform your running, your perspective on running, and ultimately your love for running. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being part of the strength running community. And don't forget, if you need something, help with your running, if you have a question, or maybe even a podcast suggestion, shoot me an email at support at strengthrunning.com. All right, take care, everyone.